Okay, today I've chosen to continue our Luke series and we turn to Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, verse 8, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you the good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped up in cloths and lying in a manger. This is the Word of God. Right, so this indeed is a Merry Christmas story. The very beginning of why we celebrate Christmas, we remember how Jesus came to us. Before we go further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, in this familiar story, help us to hear your words afresh. Importantly, Lord, help us to make room for you in all our hearts. That truly our hearts will be your home. This church will be a place that you will be welcome. You'll be pleased to come in our midst as often as you desire, Lord. And so, Lord, we convey this time and ourselves afresh into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So once again, welcome to Amoka Methodist Church. It's good that we can gather as God's people, as God's family in His house together. Our church team for 2020, as you have come in, hopefully you have received a church journal for next year. Our theme is A Home with a Heart. A home with a heart. In case you missed out picking up this copy, do approach the ashes uh, uh, somewhere after the service and you can pick up this as well. So this is our church team for 2020. And these few simple words essentially capture the essence of where we hope as a church to be headed towards in 2020 and beyond. I've written about this in the church journal on pages 6 and 7. You can take your time to read it as well, pages 6 and 7. Essentially, I summarize for us now. We want to be first of all known as a people whose hearts are completely devoted to God. That's what we want to be known for, a place where God can call us a home, where God is eagerly welcomed home in our midst. We read in today's scripture text that the baby Jesus was placed in the manger because there was no room available for him. I hope we will not become that people where we have no more room for Jesus in our hearts because idols or other things, other concerns in our lives have crowded Jesus out and we are forcing Jesus to go to that little manger again. I shared last year that the manger is essentially this stone trough you see in the screen uh, where they used to feed animals. It's probably cold, hard and extremely unhygienic. It's somewhere that we wouldn't even dare to touch ourselves, much less place a newborn baby and much less a baby of divine origin. The very King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has created the whole universe, and yet he was placed in this manger because there was no room for them. So I pray for all of us that we will always make room for Jesus in our hearts, not just this Christmas, 
but for 2020 and beyond, that we will be known as a people whom Jesus would love to come to our midst. A home, first of all, for God. A heart for God. And this is really in line with our long-term vision to be a Methodist family after God's heart. To be known as someone after God's heart really is the highest praise a Christian can ever receive. And I pray that this will be our description for all of us, regardless of age, that when people interact with us, they will know us as men and women who are after God's heart, a people who are set apart for God. And in Acts chapter 13, David himself was described as a man after God's heart. Why? Because he did obediently obeyed everything that God wanted him to do. He did everything, Acts chapter 13, verse 22, everything that God wanted him to do, David did it, and that's why he was known as the man after God's heart. <clears throat> so I pray also for all of us, this is our upward call, that we will learn to love God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and to obey everything that the Lord commands us, and to be a holy people. Second, this team, Home with a Heart, I hope you will also inspire us in the way we live out our communal Christian life. So upwards is our love towards God, that's our upward call, but now a horizontal call to love each other the way God loves us. Home, if you think of this imagery, in its ideal state, is a place where we can all be fully ourselves, deeply flawed and yet deeply loved, imperfect and yet still loved. Yesterday, unfortunately, I had to conduct a funeral for someone, uh, and <clears throat> the, the sad part, of course, you know, uh, someone is called home to the Lord. The glorious part is the hope that we have that we will see this person again. But what was beautiful about this funeral was the eulogy shared by the son about his father. He shared a text that he sent to his father some Father's Day ago, some years ago, on Father's Day. And part of it he says, Dad, I thank you that you are an imperfect father. I was a bit shocked. Oh no, what will he say next? And then he said something along these lines, Because of your imperfections, now I am able to accept myself as a father to my own three children with my imperfections. The grace you have given to me through your imperfection speaks to me when I am a father myself. So that's the kind of atmosphere we need to have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Recognizing that we are all imperfect, but by the grace of God, we can help each other. We accept each other. So hopefully, <clears throat> Amokyo Methodist Church, especially in our cell groups, will be the kind of place where we can really see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, a home that we have this sense of belonging. Our cell groups can be that place that we run to in times of struggle, but also in times of celebration. We truly honour and celebrate each other's strengths and blessings. And also that place where that nursery, where God's dream can be breathed and nurtured and caused to grow and give birth in our lives. So that's our inward call, to love one another as God has loved us, to fulfil this debt to Christ, taken from Romans chapter 13, verse 8, which is our theme verse for next year. Our debt to Christ is basically to keep on loving one another. Incidentally, the book of Romans will be our pulpit series beginning in January. So by Luke next week, uh, Justin, our local preacher and the wonderful, excellent guitarist just now, he will be preaching the last sermon for last Sunday sermon next Sunday. And after that, in January, we will kickstart the study on Romans. So that's uh, number two, to love one another as God loves us. And again, this is in line with our longer-term vision to be a Methodist family of the God's heart. In the journal as well, on page three, I've given a simple write-up for that. Do take time to read through. Essentially, I pray that we will be a family that will stand resolutely with each other regardless of life circumstances. Right? That we will always stand with each other as a family should. Even though we are flawed, imperfect, we will continue to stand with each other just as God always stands by us. 
Third, I hope this heart towards God and each other will lead to a heart for the community, a heart for the lost, the needy, that we will give hospitality, warm hospitality to all who walk through our doors or we have to walk out to them, whether it's giving free tuition to needy students or spending two hours with an isolated senior, whether the community steps in our doors or we step out, we pray that everyone who encounters us will encounter the genuine love of Christ. So that is our outward call to love our neighbours as ourselves. You know, it's really in our rich Methodist heritage that we have a high, watchful eye out for the needy and we extend our hands to help those in need. Almost 135 years ago, the first Methodist missionaries established the Methodist schools for this precise purpose. Did you know that Methodist Girls' School, for example, MGS, started out as a school reaching out to Tamil girls? Very different from where they are today, where they are located. But it started out with this vision to reach out to those who had no chance to be educated. They broke down all the barriers of race, gender, privilege to start the schools for them. So that's our Methodist heritage. We pray that we will continue to reach out to the poor and needy in our midst. Next year, as Methodist Church in Singapore celebrates our 135th anniversary, there will be some events lined up, and I pray that we can participate as we can to bless those uh, who are in greater need than us. <clears throat> so for those of you who see yourselves as part of Amokyo family, I hope this vision resonates with you. We have this heartbeat, you know, that's excited, with, filled with joy and hope for 2020 and beyond. For those of you visiting us today, uh, many of you joining us today, we hope that this vision will also capture your heart and you understand what Amokyo family is really about and you can join us as we extend God's family together. Having a heart that is welcoming to God is not as easy as it seems. You know, as the scripture text reminds us, it's very easy for something or someone to dethrone God from the throne of our lives. Where God is no longer king, he's not ruling there, in fact, not even welcome there. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says this, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is a very familiar text for those of us who have been in church long enough. <clears throat> and some of us use this verse to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with those who have not yet become Christians. We tell them, if you open up your hearts to Jesus, he will come in and you will become a believer. But actually this verse is written not to non-Christians, but to Christians. It's not written to individuals, but to a whole collective group of people, the community of faith as we know it. So first of all, we want to recognize something was wrong collectively. Jesus is knocking at the door, not of a heart, but of hearts, of a whole community where something was wrong collectively. Yes, probably something at the individual level contributed to the collective problem, but that's the context. God was speaking to a whole group of people. Second, when Jesus issued this invitation, Earlier in that chapter, he says to, of this group of Laodicean Christians, you say to yourselves, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. What went wrong in this church was that it was wrapped up in its economic status. It was wealthy and self-reliant. That's the problem. And this description is probably true of many Christians in Singapore, not necessarily true of Amokyo, although I think there is... Uh, some evidence of that, some vestiges of wealth invariably manifested in our midst as well. 
But the most important message really was the use of the metaphor of lukewarmness. Why did Jesus use this against the Laodicean church? We have to understand the historical context of this Bible passage. And in Laodicea, basically, they were uh, situated in a place to the north of them was this place called Hereapolis. It had healthy hot springs. Those of you who got to onsen, you know how wonderful hot springs can be. It keeps you warm in winter. And in the south of Laodicea, they had Colossia, which had cold springs. After a hot run, hot day, those that refreshing drink, you know, wow, so wonderful. But Laodicea had perpetual problems with its water supply, which was brought by aqueduct six miles now from the six miles from the south. And by the time the water reached Laodicea, it had become lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. It does not warm us. It does not comfort us. It is useless, unclean, undrinkable, the kind of water that makes you sick. And that's why Jesus says literally to the church, I will spit you out of my mouth. Think of that. You order a cup of coffee, whether kopi or some expensive brand, and then the coffee comes to you lukewarm. You want to spit it out of your mouth. That's the kind of imagery Jesus is giving to the church. This Christmas season, as we contemplate about whether Jesus is welcome in our hearts, whether our hearts have room for Jesus, whether Jesus will be pleased with us to enter in, let's examine ourselves. Have we as individuals or as a church allowed wealth and prosperity to blind us to our desperate need for Christ? Have we allowed wealth, prosperity to take the throne of our hearts? And for some of us, maybe the problem is not wealth and prosperity. It could be something else. Climbing the corporate ladder, the grades for exam, a name you're trying to make for yourself. It is so easy for something or someone else to take root in our hearts and take center stage instead of Jesus being on the throne of our hearts and our lives. But still, I feel the Spirit is telling us that we really need to hear this warning against wealth. That is where I'm going to pitch today's main uh, so-called rebuke from the Lord to us. Let's heed the words from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses uh, 17 onwards, spoken by Moses as he prepared Joshua and his generation to enter the promised land, which we have entered so-called in our 41st year as Amokyo Methodist Church, our promised land. This is what Moses warned his people. He said, you may say to yourself one day, my power and my strength, my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, remember that it's actually the Lord your God who gives you the ability to produce wealth. We live very comfortably in Singapore, most of us, majority of us, from what I can see, what I know. We thank God for the leaders who were given wisdom to know how to govern this country and brought us through 50, over 54 years of wealth and prosperity to where we are today. But let's not forget who is the one truly behind this prosperity and wealth. Not ourselves, not the government leaders, even though God walks through them, gives us ability. It is God himself who gives us the ability to produce wealth. So let's always be grateful and remember those who do not have enough. If someone were to walk, in, walk into our midst today, someone who does not dress well, smells badly, what will our response be? Will we shift a few seats away? Or will we make room for them in our hearts by embracing them? James, in chapter 2, warns us, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, you must not show favoritism. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show attention, special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you just stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the Laodicean church problem with wealth is not new. The book of James also addresses this discrimination among Christians, and this is the early church. So don't think the early church is perfect. It is not, as we are not perfect. So this problem has been around for 2,000 years. Christians making bad judgments because of wealth. As I prepared this Christmas message, the one passage that kept coming back to me is Mark chapter 10. Again, a difficult passage, but I know that the Lord wants us to really hear it, to chastise us, to discipline us because He loves us. Mark chapter 10 is the encounter between Jesus and the rich young man. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Notice verse 21. Because Jesus loved the young man, he had to rebuke him. Verse 21, Jesus says, uh, states there, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Because Jesus loved him, he told him, you need to sell everything. It's not about just obeying the commands of God. It's really about your heart's attitude and wealth has taken the place of God in your life. In the same way, because Jesus loved the Laodicean church, he rebuked them saying, I counsel you, Christians, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can become truly rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and soft to put on your eyes so that you can see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Not a very popular message to preach on Christmas, right? <laughs> Normally we want to hear a joyful message for Christmas. But if we truly want to make our hearts God's home, we need to hear Jesus knocking on the doors of our hearts. Will we open our hearts, remove, declutter what is on the throne of our hearts, put them aside so that we make room for Jesus to come in? Jesus says, be earnest and repent. Here I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens up the door, I will come in and eat with the person and they with me. So let us seriously consider this Christmas what is taking the throne, the place of God's, uh, God's place on our hearts. Is it wealth, status, or something else? Let's welcome Jesus fully, more and more fully into our hearts and lives. Make room for Him to enter in. Let's not put Jesus away on a stone-cold manger as He first came 2,000 years ago. As someone has wisely said this, wealth is a great servant, but a terrible master. Wealth is a great servant, but a terrible master. 
Be careful whom you are serving. And that's why Jesus warns, again in Luke 16 verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a very difficult message to, to speak. In some sense, I'm being prophetic here, to speak the truth, but I speak it in love, that we hear these words from Jesus, so that we really deal with the core issues in our hearts. So that's the first message for today. We move the idols sitting upon the throne of our hearts. For many of us, that's money. And let's give Jesus his rightful place. Let's not forget or ignore the fact that the very first people to hear the good news were ordinary shepherds, simple people. Jesus did not appear to the kings or to the rich, but he appeared to the lowly, first of all. right? So Jesus came into a poor world, a world that was poor first, to show us his priorities. Let's follow him. In order to really displace these idols in our hearts, you know science experiments, right? To display something, you need to put another object in. So it's not easy, it's not possible for us to say, okay, I will not think about money anymore, I will not think about money anymore, but you're still thinking about money. That's not the way to get rid of it, the idol. The right way is to put in the right stuff, the so-called the big rocks in our lives, so that there's good priority for God to take center place in our lives. So let's watch this video, first of all, to remind us, it's probably not new to you, that, uh, but let's watch this video to remind us that big rocks must always go in first in our lives. So we need, always need to put our priorities right. One of the, uh, I don't know whether it's called benefits of a pastor, is I get to conduct funerals and wakes quite often. And so I'm always reminded of the big rocks in my life. I want to urge us all to really take stock of this. Don't neglect your families, your loved ones, things that really are very important. And don't push them off till the last minute. By the time death comes knocking, it will be too little, too late. So let's begin to readjust our lives, priorities, putting in place all these big rocks first. And the first big rock we need to really put in place, besides our own family lives, right, is our daily individual personal discipline of reading God's Word. Given to you in the church journal as well is the Bible reading plan, which has actually been there for a few years, which I follow myself. So I track myself in the past four years. I basically read through the Bible once every two years, following this guide. So whether you read Old Testament first or New Testament, or you read passages here and there, but over two years, essentially, I read the Bible once through. I pray that we will read this for ourselves, uh, the Bible for ourselves, and not just come to church and read the Bible once uh, every week. Let me show you the next video. As a real study uh, in the U.S., the benefits of reading the Bible at least four times a week. How many times are you reading your Bible per week? <laughs> I hope not just once a week or less than that. I suspect for a lot of us, we only read the Bible probably once a week on Sunday. And even then, it is not you read yourself, it's the Bible, uh, pastor reading it to you or the scripture leader reading it to you. Some of us, maybe twice a week because we go to cell groups. So at the cell group, we also hear the word of God. But that's probably it for a lot of us. And that's why we feel that, hey, we are spiritually stagnant. We're not growing. God is not at work in my life. If we put in the big rock of reading the Bible at least four times a week, try it out 
and see how this will be a big difference in your life. So that's the first big rock we need to put in, the personal, individual discipline of reading God's Word daily. The second big rock we need to put in is the monthly communal discipline of seeking God's presence together. The monthly communal discipline of seeking God's presence together. And under this category, there are three subcategories of spiritual disciplines which I strongly advocate for all of us to make a home for God and for each other. If there's only one event you can attend in church every month, listen here. If there's only one event you can attend in church every month, it's not the Sunday meeting first of all. It is the prayer meeting. Come for the prayer meeting. That's when we really seek God's face. It's not about us anymore because in the prayer meeting, we don't come in with our agendas. We come in with God's agenda in mind. And that's what our third Wednesday prayer meeting every month we seek to do. On the, Every third Wednesday, we want to come together to seek God's face for His presence. This is the platform. I've always encountered the Lord's presence. Every, every month without fail, this is the platform that I really look forward to. To go there, to spend time with God, let Him speak to me and me in His presence. So we must all learn the importance of centering our lives around God's presence. We have already seen earlier the importance and benefits of God's Word. But beyond reading the Bible, we have to understand that Bible reading is not the end. Bible reading is only a means to an end. Yes, Jesus is the Word of God. Yes, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and causes it to come alive in us. Yes, the Bible is the chief means of grace, revealing who God is. It is the most important book we will ever need. It is a prophetic book, as I preached last Sunday. But if you read the Bible only as a religious book for self-improvement, then you have missed the whole point. The Bible is not just a book of do's and don'ts, how to improve your life. Although there are many commandments, the Bible actually brings us to a place of meeting where we learn to meet with God face to face. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. More important than the Word of God is the God of the Word. Reading the Word of God is to bring us into an encounter with the God of the Word. To illustrate that the two are not the same, let me ask you, does the Bible save you or does Jesus save you? Jesus, right? Only this segment is confident. The rest of you don't know the answer, is it? It's Jesus who saves. It's not faith in the Bible that saves us. It is a personal relationship with Jesus that saves us. Knowing who God is, who Jesus is, that He came on earth on Christmas Day and so and so forth. Of course, we know that it's the Bible that reveals us, to reveals to us who Jesus is. No doubt, we need the Bible. But we must not confuse the means and the ends. The Bible is the means, the way in which we come to know God. But the end goal is really to know God personally. Please hear me carefully. I'm not trying to pit us, you know, the God of the Word versus the Word of God. That's not what I'm trying to do. The Bible is God's means of grace to us, but the chief goal really is to encounter the God of the Word to have a personal relationship with Him. I'll give you another analogy. <clears throat> when a house is constructed, what is the first and most important thing to be built? The foundation. Right? Without the foundation, this structure can never stand. So the most important thing we need to build is the foundation, the first thing we need to build. And the Word of God is that foundation. Jesus Christ is that special cornerstone that the whole structure is aligned towards. So the Word of God is that foundation and we can build on no other foundation except on Jesus Christ and the Word of God. There's no mistaking that. Jesus Christ is the foundation. The Word of God is the foundation. But let's ask ourselves, why is that house built? Is a house not built for a larger purpose? Is a house not built for occupancy? 
is a house not built for a relationship between the host and the guests who come into that home. Imagine this, you go to a friend's housewarming and you go around, you know, checking every nook and corner of the foundation. Wow, this foundation here like that. You go around there, check. Hey, this foundation is cracking here. But you never spend time with the owner of the house. That's really weird, right? If you go and visit someone and all you do is to check the foundations, but you never have a relationship with the owner. And that's what Bible study does to us sometimes. I'm not saying that Bible study is wrong, but we must not forget the means versus the ends. When we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, ultimately it must bring us to an encounter, a meeting with God. Take a simple passage. We can read, The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23. A lot of us like it. You can study ancient shepherds, modern shepherds, and then you walk away thinking, Wow, I know so much about shepherds. But you never talk to the shepherd. (laughs) Something is wrong. Right? So more important than the Word of God is really the God of the Word. So we need to make time to know and spend time with this God of the Word. The Pharisees, they knew the Word of God very well. And we really need to hear this lesson and heed this lesson. No one knew the Bible better than them, the Old Testament Scriptures, including me. I'm quite sure they will know it better than me. They know all the laws, all 623 of them. I don't even know more than 10. (laughs) Right? Ten Commandments. But yet, they missed it when Jesus, the very Word of God, came into into their midst. They completely couldn't see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Word. They knew the Word of God, but they cannot recognize the God of the Word. So the prayer meeting for us, we begin the third Wednesday prayer meeting with reading a whole chunk of Scripture, one, two chapters of Bible, reading, just pure reading without any preaching. And from there, we launch into prayer and praise, praising God for what He has given to us in His Word, seeking His face and His presence. That's what our prayer meeting is trying to do, and I want to encourage us to put that rock into our lives. If there's a second event that you can attend every month, please attend the Holy Communion service. Not that there's anything magical about taking communion. It's not like a magic bullet that can protect you forever. No, that's not how Christianity works. But the Holy Communion service, as it is designed, after the preaching of the Word of God, the climax actually is Holy Communion, to remind us that we have a relationship, communion with a Holy God. So if there's only one you can attend every month, one event, make it a prayer meeting. If you only can attend two meetings in a month, second one should be the Holy Communion service, where we spend time as God's people in His presence at His table, where Jesus is the host, we are not the host, and we come as guests into His home to feast with Him. The third and most important uh, monthly event in your calendar ought to be a cell group time. And the cell group meeting I have in mind is not your typical Bible study group, but the kind of class meeting group that John Wesley envisioned, where each member comes to share what God has been doing and sharing and saying in their lives. It is always ongoing. It is not coming to a cell group and saying, oh, God spoke to me 20 years ago about this. No. God spoke to me yesterday or this morning about this. This was my issue with God this week. It's always fresh, ongoing, because there is a real living relationship with God. In the original class meetings, as you might already know and guess, the emphasis is not on the Word of God, but on the God of the Word. How have we been obedient to the God of the Word? How have we been walking with the God of the Word? And then we come and share what God has been doing and saying in our lives. Many people have asked over the months, 
if these are the big stones, where is the place for Bible study? And here, I'm not afraid to say again, first of all, I expect all of you to read the Bibles on your own. Got it? You have to read the Bible on your own. I don't expect the cell leaders to feed you anymore. Cell leaders say, whew, right? <laughs> but that's my expectation. It is not the cell leader's job to feed you God's Word. It is your own responsibility to feed yourself God's Word. Even if you can only read one verse a day, it's good enough. If you read one verse a day, four times a week, let's see if there's a change in your life. So I don't expect the cell leaders to feed you God's Word anymore. We always return to point number one, the individual, personal discipline of reading God's Word for ourselves. And then, if you have additional time, additional capacity, additional appetite, then go attend other Bible study tools, programs that the Discipleship and Nurture Ministry will put up, whether it's Disciple Class, Master Life, Companions in Christ, many others. Right? If you have capacity, then you add on. If you not, at least do the basic Bible reading on your own. Then Bible study will take place after that. My prayer really for all of us is that we not only know the Word of God, but more importantly, know the God of the Word. Don't just let it be hate knowledge, be big-headed, but let us be big-hearted because the God of the Word dwells in our hearts. And when God comes, our hearts are enlarged to receive more of Him and to receive more of others. The final and third rock, the discipline, is that regular, individual, and corporate discipline of serving God's world. It's regular. It has to be regular. It cannot be just once in a while, but the regular discipline. But I don't want to spell exactly how regular it is for you because all of you have your own schedules. But it must be regular as we serve God's world together. A lot of us, we already know this, one of the great malaises of our society is that we live in a very consumeristic culture. We always think about ourselves. Right? It's nothing new actually, but in our world, it's accelerated. We think of ourselves more above than anything else. And so one important way for us as Christians to combat this consumeristic culture is the discipline of service. To do things that do not benefit us. To serve without expecting return or reward. That's the only way we can combat this consumeristic mindset, to learn to serve. I thank God. Uh, recently, I asked the staff to give me an estimate how many people are serving in church in their various ministries. And so the numbers came back. Cell ministry, for example, 140. Witness evangelism, 268. Family life, 15. WNM, 120. So and so forth. So I added all these numbers up. And we have close to 1,100 people serving. Wow, that's more than our Sunday attendance for now. <laughs> so effectively, each person is doing more than one plus percent of a, one plus, right, of a service. But I also know that actually there are overlaps, lah, right? Even though it looks very good, but actually at the most, maybe 50% accounting for overlap of people are serving. It's still good, but I want to challenge really the rest of us, the other 50%, to make it our regular discipline to learn how to serve. Not expecting return, but simply to serve. Because if you look at the way Jesus lived his lifestyle, he said this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be a bit closer to God's heart, to move closer, in, to resemble our Lord Jesus, then we need to embrace service as part of our lifestyle. It doesn't have to be big. Like I said, it doesn't have to be big. It can be very small, beginning in small areas. We need people, for example, to fill up the communion cups. Nobody sees them. Do you know who fills up the communion cups every Sunday? 
right? Most of us don't know, but yet such an important role. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be at the forefront. But we begin to serve wherever God has called us and we become like Jesus in the process. So as we step into 2020, let's strive to serve together as God's family, to build God a home, a home with a heart, a heart for those beyond the walls of the church, a heart for each other as fellow believers, to really treasure our relationships with each other, and above all, a heart for God. This Christmas and beyond, hopefully we pray 2020, God be gracious to us. We will become the people who will welcome Jesus more and more into our lives. First of all, to recognize the idols of our hearts, whether it's wealth or something else. And then to displace these idols, not with, you know, uh, you can't do it by negative removal, but you have to add in the positive rocks, the big rocks. The first big rock is to soak in God's Word for yourselves. Read it at least four times a week, if not more. But this reading is not just to know the Word of God better, but really to encounter the God of the Word. And secondly, to seek God's presence. Three platforms I give to you here. The prayer and praise meeting every third Wednesday of, uh, third Wednesday of every month. The communion service, first Sunday of every month. And the class meeting, whenever the cell group meets. And finally, to serve God's will, to serve wherever God calls us, to let others experience the Word of God, the God of the Word, through our service. Come, let us pray. Lord, we thank you once again on this Christmas day that you came. You took the initiative to come to us, to come to a people who are sinners, fallen, selfish, consumeristic. But Lord, we thank you, you came. We thank you also for your words of rebuke this morning. And it's because you love us, you rebuke us. So Lord, forgive us for the many times we have not put you as the king and throne on the throne of our hearts. Forgive us. Help us from this day forth and especially in 2020 to put the big rocks back into our lives. Enable us once again to be your holy people who will live lives pleasing to you, who will always make room for Jesus in our hearts and in this church. We give you thanks for this time. We can come before you to honour you, to celebrate you. But bring this service and worship beyond Sunday and Christmas Day. But let it be every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.